Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. everyone is Jen. You know Jess and I often talk about how aloe moves helps us stay fit. But May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so I really wanted to point out how amazing the site and app are for mental health as well. It is so easy for me to get stuck in a rut mentally or get stressed out or feel lonely when I'm working from home. I'm guessing you've all been there too. But I found that a much more productive way to deal with those feelings or even just like a bad day is to hop on alomoves.com and reset. Allo Moves is the award-winning on-demand streaming wellness platform app and website that has workouts, mindfulness, nutrition, self-care, and more to help boost your mental and physical well-being. I also love that I can take the same class as friends or connect with other members in the community comments. Allo Moves really brings people together. Lately, I have been very into the five-minute relaxation body scan with Susie Mark Shifflin. Guys, Susie is the most soothing instructor. She incorporates these sound bath sounds into her head-to-toe relaxation exercise. It's so easy to do. Obviously, there are also yoga classes and exercise classes and so many other things you can learn and check out on alamoves.com, but I just had to share that one with you. Find yourself together when you join Alamoves. Join the community on alamoves.com today and use code FATMASCARA20 for an exclusive 30-day free trial plus 20% off an annual membership. That's alamoves.com code MASCARA20 for a 30-day free trial plus 20% off an annual membership. Again, that's alamoves.com and the code is MASCARA20. Jen, happy Friday. It's Fat Mascara interview day. Jess, thank you. Happy Friday to you too. <laughs> I just feel like people that tuned in are like, Jen, Jen, where is she? Do these people know each other? Hi guys. What's up? Welcome, What's up? welcome. We've got a great interview for you. I'm so excited to introduce you to Eilis Carter. She's a journalist and copywriter. Her work has been featured in like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Allure. She's written copy and brand voice for brands like Shiseido, Bliss, Laura Mercier, Madam C.J. Walker, who we actually talk about in our conversation. And get this, she is a sideshow performer. You will not believe it. <laughs> what? You, yeah, I... 
I don't even want to give it away because I want you to listen to the discussion so you can find out what sideshow skill she has. But she's been featured on Gossip Girl. She was on the TV show, the original. Performed with Rob Zombie and Cirque du Soleil. What a renaissance woman. Um, So I was introduced to Elise by our mutual friend, Mirav, and she thought I might like her book. And she was 1,000% right. Elise wrote The Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History. And that was published by Prometheus in November. Jess, the research that she did for this book, I, I know you and I lament sometimes on the air about journalists that don't do their homework. Oh my gosh, she did her homework. It's insane the amount of research she put into this. She traced the ways Americans use makeup going back to the 1700s and helped us all understand how it came to play a role in so many lives and how, and even how the movie industry propelled its popularity. She also gives a really interesting history on the whole idea of celebrity in America. And I think it makes what's been happening in the last year. I mean, Jess, how many times have we talked about a celebrity beauty launch in the last year? Like, like it's almost, it's like weekly. It's weekly. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to talk to her part of our discussion because there's context for that. And it helps explain why, you know, that's how the American beauty industry operates. Plus it's, her book's just like packed with all this beauty nerd knowledge that I know you guys are going to really love. And she dispels some myths that I think a lot of people in the beauty industry, I'm included, these sort of like ideas about American beauty that we've all repeated a million times, don't know where they got their start and they might not be true. So that's my little like, mm-hmm. listen I feel in like if this you is required to- listening. This is like a, found- this is foundational knowledge for basically fat mascara. It is. And we only barely touched on it in our interview. So I really encourage you to get the book as well because there's so many things in there that we just didn't have time to talk about. Just one warning though, we had a slight delay on our recording, which uh, I adjusted for in editing. But if it ever sounds like we have like awkward pauses or we talk over (laughs) each other and you're like, oh my God, Jen's the rudest interviewer. Just trust me, that's that's not (laughs) what was going on. We had like a weird delay in our recording and hopefully that won't be too annoying. But I just wanted you guys to know that in advance as you listen. I'm so excited for you all to hear more about Elise and her work. Hey, Elise Carter, welcome to Fat Mascara. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me about you? You're a writer, right? I am a writer. I have. Uh, I am mainly a. Uh, I am mainly a beauty journalist because there's just a lot of that. But I've also written for the New York Times. I've written for the Wall Street Journal. I've written for Rolling Stone and Allure and a bunch of other weird places. Uh, I also do just weird pop culture. I have that sidebar and. Sideshow history. So I've written on that a lot. Uh Yeah, I am also a professional sideshow performer. And my main. Stop. Yeah. What does that entail? (laughs) I'm a sword swallower and fire eater. I've been on Dickinson, I've been on Mysteries at the Museum. I was on Gossip, the first Gossip Girl, not the current Gossip Girl. Amazing. Swallowing swords? Swallowing swords. There was something else they rebooted. I'm like, oh, I hope they have me back. And (laughs) they didn't. The recurring sword swallower was not yeah, a thing, unfortunately. Sometimes it's usually, it's usually a one-off. I, it's actually not a great skill for big crowds. It's a better skill for like a smaller crowd. I think people are, people started, I've started reading articles about it again. It comes into the mainstream every once in a while because there's like American Horror Story did a season. Yes. In a freak show with the wonderful Matt Frazier. Also recently there was, um, they remade Nightmare Alley. And so people are sort of, I've seen uh, some reviews and I'm like, well, this is historically inaccurate. Um, Not that anybody really cares that much, but 
You do, I know, from having read your book. You're all about historical accuracy. (laughs) That is so cool. Is there any other sideshow skills you have besides sword swallowing? I'm a a fire eater. I'm a human blockhead, which is the ability to hammer (laughs) nails in your nose. And I can do both nostrils. Not everybody can do that. I can escape from a straitjacket. I have a bed of nails. Yeah, I can walk on broken glass. Oh, you have lots of talents. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think so. But yeah, I've, I've been That's doing amazing. it since 2005. And yeah, I've, I've done it across the country. And yeah, I have done shows here and there out at Coney, the wonderful Coney Island and, you know, all sorts of nightclubs. I've, I work with Broad Zombie on something. He hired me to be in the opening of a comedy special he directed for Tom Papa. Like I said, Gossip Girl Very and cool. Dickinson. And like once in a while, somebody needs a sword swallower in New York. And I get to go do that. Well, now we know one in case we ever need yeah, one. Yeah, in case so you that's ever need one. A great introduction. You're my first sword swallower. Uh, statistically, that's there. Are, I think fewer hundred than three hundred living sword swallowers on Earth. So, so it is statistically that is so. Let, let's talk beauty a little bit. So, you wrote this book about lipstick. Red menace: How lipstick changed the face of American history. There are so many. You know what? I just have to say from the footnotes, now that I'm getting to know you a little bit, I can tell that you are just struck by the quirkier things that happen throughout history because your lipstick theme comes in strong, but it was the footnotes, the extensive footnotes that were the joy of the book for me because it was like all these weird facts you happened to learn while you were were researching lipstick that you're like, I'm sorry, I can't not include this. I am so glad you said that because to me, I was like, well, I can't leave this out but it doesn't necessarily fit into the text. And there were some things like, I wasn't really dealing with hair care, but I just, I was like, you got to shout out Madam C.J. Walker, you know, because she was just great. Yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. And it's just, you know, I am human and I just find it before. Now we talk about like your makeup regimen or your makeup routine. We have all these words for it that don't make me giggle quite as much. But in the 1800s, they talked about your toilette, your toilet. And it's just funny. So sue me. <laughs> I do remember when we got down yeah. to like the symbol, you know, when footnotes are like a little symbol, guys. Well, she was like down to like the cross with the star next to it because there was like 10 and it was for toilette. And she just wrote, Last time, I promise. I just laughed out loud. I was <laughs> and like, I just this agree. Funny. My editor Jake, like God love him, because he let me do that, and he wasn't like, no, this is serious history. Knock that the hell off. He was great. So let's talk about your book. What inspired you to write this book, and how'd you come up with the title, Red Menace? Honestly, it's funny because I come at lipstick three ways. One is with the performing background. Um, friend of mine who's a just a burlesque legend and and just absolutely inspiring performer and human being her legal name is the world famous bob and she describes the process she's a biological queen and like you know she was assigned female at birth and she describes the process as getting of dressing for the stage as being a female female impersonator so that really stuck with me like cuz to me that was just a great way of looking at gender to begin with you know, I've worked for many, many years as a copywriter, so I've seen how the sausage is made and selling beauty, and as a journalist sort of on the other side of that, which is similar but different. So those things were in the back of my head. Now, all of that said, I kind of, the book came out of a whim. There used to be a publishing company that did single-subject books, and it was like, 
the name of it escapes me this minute, of course. But they did stuff like the hoodie or the remote control or the history of refrigeration. And like, it's a small thing, but it's important. And they were sort of longer than a long article, but shorter than a, you know, like a fully fleshed out book. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to pitch it. And they did consider it. And Object Lessons is the name of the series. And sort of the more I played with the idea, the more I was like, this is a book. This is a whole book. And this is an interesting micro history of looking at America. So that tells me about sort of how you got started writing the book. Did communism play in? Where's the title Red Menace? Like, why is that? Is lipstick the menace? Talk to me about that. The phrase the Red Menace is the supposed threat that communism or socialism or whatever against America. And that's been a long time fear. Like, I found references going back to the early 1900s. And it just struck me as funny because the book is not necessarily about red lipstick, it's about all lipstick, but that idea of threat struck me as it's just very funny and it's still going on and it's still like very relevant with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and both her choice of red lipstick and um, this just insane fear Americans have always had of democratic socialism and socialism and communism and collectivism and they never know the difference. And just the idea of lipstick is often just touted as women's empowerment and that is another huge fear that is shot through our culture from top to bottom. When you were researching your book, you said you said this of suffragettes, everybody thinks of that when they think of lipstick, but that obviously you found that that wasn't necessarily the beginning and wasn't even a true story. What are some of the surprising things that you found about the history of makeup use in America? You know, we have this narrative and it's funny, I just questioned someone, in a friendly way, I just questioned someone on that suffragist thing. She had said that she had read that thing about the suffragists wearing lipstick in Vogue. And she's, you know, I said, that's not true. And she's like, are you saying Vogue is wrong? And I was like, I kind of have to, because apparently she had read that factoid in Vogue. So don't come and get me, Anna Winter, but I think that that is untrue. So the longstanding story reported in Vogue was that during the suffragette marching, Elizabeth Arden was handing out lipstick, right? Red lipstick and women and suffragists loved it. Red lipstick. Yeah, and suffragists loved it, and it was a way of sticking it to the man. And so that's how American women started wearing certainly red lipstick, but lipstick in general. And in my research, I found that that was baloney, or at least (laughs) almost impossible to prove true. And the Arden Company was delightful and super helpful, and they went to their archives. I went back and I looked at Lindy Woodhead's book, War Paint. She doesn't directly say that. And I couldn't find it in any contemporary account. What I did find was that in those years, they were already talking about suffragists as the ugly feminist myth. You know, like they were no fun. They were dowdy. They were, you know, that myth started way early, along with, you know, this first wave of of feminism in America. So it's a great story and it sounds right. And they drag it out. Every, you know, every election cycle, I hear it at least once. And I, you know, I love the story and I believed it too. I just can't find anything that's contemporary that supports it. So this is where the Sideshow background comes in. In Sideshow, you know, it's 
people say, don't let, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. In Sideshow, we say print the legend. And so this was, a I found, was a, probably a case of print the legend. It was probably a later thing that came out from Arden at the company of Arden, whether it was her or one of her PR people. And she probably was in some way involved with the suffragist movement because they're like Alva Vanderbilt was involved in a lot of high society ladies and she was something of a striver. But, but this neat story of like lipstick is empowering yeah. and, and it, that's the first start of it. It's just not true. It's the Newton's apple of beauty. Like it sounds great and it puts a little <laughs> fine point on it and you're like, okay, here is year one. <laughs> and just nothing of, actually yeah. works that way. Well, that year one, that was, I thought that, no, I thought that too, because like the, just as a beauty editor, but when you when I read your book, I was like, oh, wait, the history goes way, way back further, right? So can you tell me like, what's the earliest you found that people in America were wearing makeup? Earliest ad I found was, or I included was 1766. So we weren't even a nation. And it was in a newspaper that was founded by Ben Franklin. And it was for rouge or rouge on powder. And uh, remember how multi-sticks, you know, used to be like all the rage? Like it was a blush, it was lipstick, it was eyeshadow. Uh Like that's that old. There really was only rouge. Lipstick didn't come in stick form until much later. But what was really interesting to me is another part of the narrative that has endured was that you know, lipstick was for sex workers and actresses and not for either classy women or the middle class. And while that may be partially true, it really seems to me that women, it was for sex workers and women of the upper class and probably not women of the middle class, but for reasons not having to do with morality or you look like a painted lady, it was more because it was an extremely expensive, impractical item. Like okay. until 1900, most women worked on, worked and lived on farms. And lipstick was, it's just not, you, you just don't need it to go out and milk a cow. And there was no FDA until the, I think the early 20th century So it was full of lead and God knows whatever else was. And so they encouraged women not to wear makeup, not necessarily because it was deceptive, although that that always exists in some of the more puritanical religions. But because once you started wearing makeup, you couldn't stop because it would destroy your skin. I think there are a couple of things going on. In the 1700s into the early 1800s, you're coming out of like, we think of Europe at that moment as you know, in that moment of time, like being Versailles and the court, you know, powdered wigs and makeup, unisex. And one thing where was Americans were declaring themselves as a society. So we were getting away from anything that smacked of Europeanness. We were getting away from kings and courtliness and all of that. We were, and we were a frontier nation. So I think it just fell out of favor with most certainly with men and with most women for the reasons that it was harmful, it was expensive, it was impractical, and it was un-American in some ways. Americans were clean scrubbed and hardy Mm -hmm. and we had places to go and like... Farms to farm. Farms to farm and, and cows to milk and whatever else. And so for most classes, from lower class, working class, middle class... It was not an item you would often find, you know, yes, maybe with sex workers or actresses. 
performers. But after that period, you start to see the women of the upper class, what they refer to as bells. You know, we know all know that expression from Gone with the Wind, which were society ladies, upper middle class and above, did tend to wear it because they had social calendars and they had the time and the money for it. So I think Americans were, the vast majority of Americans were not wearing it, but not for the reasons that we think. It's not because it automatically branded you a whore. That we used to think before you read your book. Yeah, which was surprising to me too. It's not like I knew any of this either before I started. Tell me this, what was, I know we, we're going to talk about lipstick and when the tube and things yeah. were invented, but what was makeup application like before the generalized population was starting to use it in the 1900s? It was a boudoir. You got your rouge powder from 1766. Yeah, you have rouge on what powder, else? which is just, it's coconeal probably, which is beetle shells, which are ground up and they make a nice red mm-hmm. color. Martha Washington had her own recipe for a colored lip balm, which was a reddish color, and it had some, it had lard and raisins in it. So that was something. A little proto-black honey kind of color, sounds like, raisins and lard, I don't know. It also had earwax from whales, so I don't think you could reproduce that if you wanted. The one thing that was crazy to me was that we used a rabbit's foot, like an actual rabbit's foot to apply product. Yeah, at first, like certainly blush, like they used a rabbit's paw to get it on the on the cheek. Things got better. They got sponges and brushes pretty quick, but I, I would think, but, you know, because it's like any painting. When did the lipstick tube come about that we, you know, think of as the classic lipstick? Officially 1917 from New Jersey. It was invented in New Jersey. There were versions of it before that, but nothing official. And I, to me, that's actually... The game changer. Lipstick was very, it was a, I I started before to explain how it was a boudoir item. And I even found, I don't remember whether I included it, but there's a quote from Edith Wharton. And if you think of Edith Wharton as sort of being the pinnacle of the Gilded era, the Victorian era, she found applying lipstick in public to be a filthy habit. And that's understandable for her because it was, if it wasn't wearing lipstick, that wasn't disgusting. It was applying it. And so part of the reason for that is it's just very impractical to move it anywhere because it's melty and it stains. There's no tube. It probably came in little porcelain boxes or tins. Mm-hmm. Women's clothing may or may not have had pockets. It wasn't something that was practical to carry in a purse to a huge extent. It's like bringing a very intimate act that happens in your bathroom yeah, into like you the public. Yeah, like you wouldn't sit at a eye. dinner table and like floss your teeth. Or clip your nails on the subway unless you live in New York City and <sighs> yeah. I still don't understand why that. But yeah. yes, it was a toilet act, like you st- said, which gave yeah. me the giggles, I know. From yeah, the I'm going back the stocks <laughs> for people who clip their nails in public. But like, it wasn't <laughs> a public act. The idea, you know, I think the whole Victorian notion of femininity was, oh, I rolled out of bed this way with the corset and the sleeve, the jigo sleeves and the the hoops and the, you know, like, oh no, this is no trouble at all. Like it really, no one saw you do it. There's also no cachet or brand appeal in whipping out your lipstick. It wasn't an item like if you have a, a La Boutin lipstick, like that's got, you know, there's a certain prestige in that. So I think the major change is not women wearing lipstick, it's women reapplying lipstick 
And also the other thing you really have to factor into this change is that women were just not out in public that much. Like if you've ever been to old Nick Surley's Ale House in the village or Old Town Like Bar, prior to 1917 around. Yeah, there are no ladies rooms there because women were not allowed in saloons or you were considered a whore. One of the things that the first of the department stores add that is just a tremendous novelty is ladies' rooms, is restrooms. And women just didn't travel far from home. They didn't travel far from home unchaperoned. They dated at home. Dating is a very modern construct, uh, as we consider it, like going out of the house alone with someone else and having spare time and having the spare change and having somewhere to go are very 20th century things. So all of those things add up Mm -hmm. to make lipstick a more publicly consumable item. Right. So it goes from being just a few to everybody, almost. Listen, there are so many skincare products on the market claiming to help reduce fine lines and wrinkles, and you know I will try most of them. But how do you know your products are actually working? Some research to back up the claims. That's why Jess and I are all about Ritual. They created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted a clinical study to take the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual's highest hair is now a part of my skincare routine, and I got in the habit of taking it every day by putting the cute little purple jar right next to my sunscreen. It looks nice on my vanity, and let's be honest, I love that. But once I stuck with the habit, I really noticed a difference in my skin. I am not the only one. In a clinical study, taking Hyacera for 90 days led to a 3.6 time reduction in crow's feet wrinkles as compared to placebo. And it led to a 2.9 increase in skin smoothness. I also like that they're easy to swallow. The capsules sort of taste like vanilla. They're not all weird and fishy like some other supplements. Plus, Ritual is a certified B Corp something we learned about on a recent episode. And all their supplements, including the Daily Protein and their Sleep Bio Series Melatonin Supplement, are vegan, gluten-free, and made traceable. Do what Jess and I did. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mascara. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mascara for 25% off. Summer is fast approaching, which means it's shapewear season. Just kidding. It's really wedding season. But I just got an invitation to a wedding in Philadelphia, and guess what I'll be wearing? Honey love. I'm not sure about the rest of the outfit or the dress, but the shapewear is going to be honey love. Here's why. Honey Love has revolutionized compression technology so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating when you're wearing shapewear. Plus, they have lingerie-inspired design details that you'll want to show off, and all their fabrics are breathable to keep you nice and cool, which is perfect for hot days. Let me tell you a story. I remember being at a wedding, this was a few years ago, pre-Honey Love, and I wore a jumpsuit, and I wasn't sure if the bathroom door locked well, but I had to take off the entire jumpsuit and then roll down the shapewear to pee, and I was like holding onto the back of the door at the same time, completely naked in the bathroom, and it took so long, and I caused this whole backup of the bathroom line, and after that, I was like, never again. Until Honey Love came along. 
Connie Love's Superpower Shorts have a 100% cotton gusset so you don't have to wear underwear underneath. And there's a convenient opening in the underwear area so you don't have to take off the whole thing to go to the bathroom. It's so easy. Honey Love products make you look good and feel good, whether it's for a wedding, event, an everyday boost of confidence. Honey Love is the perfect plus one. Treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash mascara. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off. That's honeylove.com slash mascara. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Honeylove.com slash mascara for 20% off. The summer vibes are just getting started, so shape your life with Honey Love. Hey everyone, it's Jen. You know Jess and I often talk about how aloe moves helps us stay fit. But May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so I really wanted to point out how amazing the site and app are for mental health as well. It is so easy for me to get stuck in a rut mentally or get stressed out or feel lonely when I'm working from home. I'm guessing you've all been there too. But I found that a much more productive way to deal with those feelings, or even just like a bad day, is to hop on alomoves.com and reset. Allo Moves is the award-winning on-demand streaming wellness platform app and website that has workouts, mindfulness, nutrition, self-care, and more to help boost your mental and physical well-being. I also love that I can take the same class as friends or connect with other members in the community comments. Allo Moves really brings people together. Lately, I have been very into the five-minute relaxation body scan with Susie Mark Shifflin. Guys, Susie is the most soothing instructor. She incorporates these sound bath sounds into her head-to-toe relaxation exercise. It's so easy to do. Obviously, there are also yoga classes and exercise classes and so many other things you can learn and check out on allomoves.com, but I just had to share that one with you. Find yourself together when you join Allo Moves. Join the community on allomoves.com today and use code FATMASCARA20 for an exclusive 30-day free trial plus 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com code MASCARA20 for a 30-day free trial plus 20% off an annual membership. Again, that's allomoves.com and the code is MASCARA20. And then when that sort of switch happened very quickly from your book, I know, then it became a business, an industry. And I want to ask you about that. Can we talk about some of those entrepreneurs? Because you mentioned in your book that, you know, the beauty industry was one of the first that let women become business people. And especially minority women could find success, which was basically unheard of in business at the time, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I personally am a huge fan of like, uh, Madam Helena Rubinstein, because one, she's just like, Madam, call me Madam, literally. And she was just a ballsy broad, like, and she was from, she was a Polish Jew, like me. And I mean, I'm born in America, but, you know, she built a business and she was very unapologetic about it. She was very ambitious. She was a great art collector. She had a spectacular collection of art and jewelry and a lucite bed that I got to see once. But that's that's an aside. But yeah, I mean, you talk about Madam C.J. Walker, you know, who's America's first self-made female millionaire, full stop. And she was black. Like, she couldn't walk in the front door of Elizabeth Arden and be served. But she could buy and sell people. Ma- made a, thousand, a million. Yeah, a thousand times over. And... So I think it was a it's an interesting thing. And it has always provided jobs like, you know, all the way down the line, like 
you know, we often get very, you know, like we love a founder story. We love a success story. So, you know, Madam C.J. Walker or Annie Malone, those are great stories. There are these great rags to riches stories about a lot of, you know, even Charles Rebson, who founded Revlon, child of Jewish immigrants, grew up dirt poor, founded the company pretty much out of spite and, you know, Revlon. So there are these great rags to riches story, but I think there's also a lot to be said for the, the, it, it, it provided jobs all down the line. And I managed to find some great statistics about like how many beauty parlors were in Harlem during the thirties, during the great depression. It's not a huge area. And there were just hundreds and it was that important to people to keep their hair up and, you know, to keep looking good and to get their nails done and, it remains a cultural, you know, at the center of a lot of cultural touchstones. You know, you look at, you know, even movies like Barbershop or Steel Magnolias, all this stuff, like beauty remains the center of a, of, of a lot of female communication and to some extent male communication. But, you know, particularly interesting was like Lucky Heart Cosmetics to me, which was founded by two Jewish chemistry students. And what they did was they took, you know, the model that Avon used, which is that direct sales, door-to-door selling method. And they made colors for women of color, for Black women particularly. And the great thing about the direct sales model for them was it removed, you didn't have to go into Woolworths, which may not stock your color and may not want you in there as a customer. You're talking about the segregated Mm -hmm. South, And so you could go to someone in your neighborhood, someone you knew from church, a friend, someone you trusted, and buy colors that seemed more designed for you. And so it's an interesting, that is a very interesting model of American beauty. When did Lucky Heart, when was that a popular brand? Uh, They ran from the 30s until about the 70s. Because I feel like we skipped a little bit as we were talking about entrepreneurs. I think we skipped over a big part of, to me, that I found interesting in your book, which was another turning point, you know, obviously the in the 1917 with the invention of lipstick, as movies got more popular. Uh, yeah. I was so impressed with how much they played into beauty and how movies and film affected the way women think about and apply makeup. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I love that. I was originally, I studied film history, so that was huge to me. And yeah, and the other thing I love to share is that Max Factor's born name, his given name was Maximilian Faktorovich, which I somehow just loved. He And now he's the one who invented... He invented pancake makeup. He was really a great technician there were a couple of big families, actually. It was Max Factor and his sons. And there was another family that's a very was very big in the movie makeup industry, but is no longer as famous, which were the Westmores of Hollywood. But Max Factor was a journeyman. Like he he certainly wasn't the only makeup artist working in Hollywood, but he was a great technician. He was a great chemist. And he they improved film in the 20s and they had been using grease paint from the theater. And when you got a higher resolution film, you could see the actors up close and they looked very ashen and they looked, it was ghoulish. It didn't look good. So he invented a more flexible makeup that covered freckles and everything and did not look weird. It looked more natural. 
So he was able to ride that invention into being like the movie makeup guy, the expert on beauty. Wait, can I ask you about his invention real quick? I know it's called pancake makeup. And as a beauty editor, I've always known, I always thought it was because it was like, it with these like little pancake sponges a, yeah. and a pancake ship. Was it because of panchromatic film? Because in yes. your book, I was like, oh, wait, maybe... Is that why it was named pancake? It became pancake, but it was panchromatic, yeah. That's crazy to me because it has always... And then I was like, oh, pancake. And you think of it as like you cake it on. Like, I don't know, but it's because of the film being called panchromatic. Yeah, and it looks like if you've ever seen it in the uh, container, it looks like a little pancake. It's beige and it, you know, sits in a... Yeah, it's a little round beige thing. It does look like a pancake. But the name was actually based on the type of film yeah, is what you're saying. it's harder to say panchromatic. Like that is not a very consumer-friendly name. So it became pancake. I think there were a couple of reasons. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it just, he made his fortune off of that. He was able to sort of build that out. The whole idea, I have to go back to another thing, which is the whole idea of celebrity endorsement is also a lot older. I kept tweeting when I was writing the book. I'm like, found my first celebrity endorsement, like 1916. And I was like, no, never mind. 198. And I was like, wait, never mind. 1860 something. And there actually was a huge American actress named Lillian Russell. And she was the first one or one of the first ones. And she endorsed a line of makeup from Perfumes to Monaco. And so the idea, you know, of the influencer or celebrity endorsement is actually way older than we think it is. It's even, you know, it predates the silence. And not just movies, right? Because you talk about some of the female pilots that were like celebrities of their day or a socialite in the 1800s that was the celebrity of her day, right? Yeah, and it's just the idea of celebrity shifted in the 20th century just because we got more mass media You know, when everybody read newspapers, it was possible to be famous. I mean, certainly everyone knew who Abraham Lincoln was and Mrs. Lincoln and some of the, you know, in your area, they would cover society. There were the society pages. Mrs. Lincoln, the first influencer. Yeah. uh, She loved gloves, apparently. You know, as that expands, as you get the daily press and it can go out much faster, you get the wire services after the Civil War, you get radio, you get movies and real you know, newsreels and stuff. And so information can just be disseminated much faster and in a much cheaper way. And so this idea of celebrity is sort of democratized. Did people want to look like the celebrities so asked about what makeup they were wearing or did the makeup manufacturers get wise and say, let's just use them to sell because people like them, like bottom up or top down? I think it's do- a little bit of both. Uh, you know, talk about being the first one to do something. The idea of being a movie star, it wasn't a thing. Like, nobody had been a movie star before. So they sort of had to, they're like, they didn't even name the actors often. And the first woman who was a really huge star that got fan mail was a woman whose name was Florence Lawrence. And she was just known as the biograph girl. And so people would just write to the biograph girl. And somehow a rumor got started that she'd been killed in a streetcar accident, which is a very early... 20th century way to die. And there was a huge hysteria about it. And then the studio was like, oh, this is a big deal. So they actually are like, oh, we really should start naming them so people can, you know, either, you know, buy tickets to see their favorite actors. So Florence Lawrence was in a, was famous in a way that like, 
the Booth family, like John Wilkes Booth and his father and his brothers who were actors, were kind of famous and people knew them, certainly. But like this was on a whole new level and could just be disseminated more quickly and seen by more people and all at the same time. Because it wasn't one theater for 10 days. It was theaters all over the country, you know, for as long as the movie was selling tickets. You could just disseminate you know, fan magazines about what they're wearing and what they're eating and who they're dating. And again, you get, sometimes you get these rags to riches story. I mean, a huge star who really popularized, we think of the twenties, we think of the bee stung lip and that's a very Clara Bow look Mm -hmm. who was, you know, dirt poor, just, you know, came from just the worst hard scrabble circumstances. She was from the Coney Island area in Brooklyn and, um, you know, had worked her way up to being this huge sex symbol movie star. And so I think there was both this aspirational element of it. Like, I would like to look like a movie star. I mean, I still, every time I mm-hmm. watch a Marlena Dietrich movie, I'm which is fairly often for me, I'm like, I am going to shave off my eyebrows and start smoking because it just looks so cool. <laughs> which is a very, don't do that. It's a very bad idea. But there is this like aspirational element to the movies of both you know, people wanting to look like the stars and deciding what type you were. You know, were you a sort of a darker Joan Crawford type? Were you a, a blonder Marion Davies? You know, who were you? Now, of course, all of this is mainly aimed at white women, but it's, yeah, I think the movies almost It goes back to the th- a theme I found throughout your book about bettering your lot. It's like the old American way to say it. Like it's a very American concept, as you pointed out in your book, that kind of helps explain why makeup did become so popular because it was like this way to sort of even the playing field or better your lot or maybe look like rags to riches and maybe you can appear rich even if you were poor, right? Yeah, because beauty has always been this sort of capital for women and... You know, think of how many stories... I mean, Cinderella is a story about someone like, she's really poor and downtrodden, but she's really hot. Like, even that very basic fairy tale is based around her being, well, both beautiful and able to scrub floors. It really is a lot of women's aspiration is tied up in beauty and how beautiful you are and how this will help you snag a husband and be socially prominent. It goes back a long way. I mean, it's... It's a very classic, you know, the beautiful princess or the beautiful orphan, you know, is a very popular trope in Western culture. Yeah. The movies especially really brought that to life. I think there's a lot about the movies, especially uh, as you get on into the depression, that is incredibly aspirational. Like there are movies that would just stop everything. Like The Women is a great example. It's a super fun movie. And it's Joan Crawford and Claudette Colbert, uh, not Claudette Colbert, Paulette Goddard, sorry, and Norma Shearer and their upper class women, you know, fighting over husbands. And there's Joan Crawford is this working class interloper who steals a husband. And it's so, she must be put in her place. So it's such an interesting way of viewing class and ambition in women but also the movie just stops in the middle. The movie is black and white and it stops in the middle, like the plot just screeching halt and there's a fashion show and the fashion show is in color. 
And there's literally oh has, yes has a matching outfit. We do love a, a, mo- a makeover montage yeah. and a beauty fashion montage yeah. in American the, film. A, somebody designed a match. The fabulous Adrian designed a matching outfit for a monkey in that in that show. But it's just spectacular, and it's designed gowns by Adrian, who also designed the Wizard of Oz look. But it's everything about like the day. It, that movie has a little bit of everything. And it takes place, a lot of it, in Elizabeth Arden itself, behind the red door at the salon at Elizabeth Arden. But it says so much about female ambition and beauty and friendship and love and what you really, you know, what women are told they want. When did, when was that movie, when did that come out? It's William Wyler. I can see the, I I want to say 30. I mean, not the exact year, but we're talking like 34. Yeah. In the thirties. I could be off on that. Okay. Um, I'm terrible at remembering years, but it's. So at this point, you know, film and film in America is help helping to push along beauty. And, you know, we're going to be coming out of the depression into the, you know, the post-World War II boom. And like, by this point, makeup is sort of solidified as part of the American culture. I noticed, uh, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I noticed as you then traveled and your book goes through the decades. So by the way, you guys have to read it. It's fascinating and and takes you on the ride of what was happening with beauty. I noticed this weird thing and tell me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to be that like when the economy was booming, there was more consumerism, more conformity and adhesion to like a beauty trend. And then there'd be this backlash. Now the economy's not booming. There's a rebellion, a rejection of the status quo. And then we'd swing back the other way, you know, 50s to the 60s and 70s, then back to the 80s. Did you find that pattern at all? Am I making that up? No, it's like, there's definitely an observable pattern. It's a little, you know, there's the lipstick index, which was another thing I found to be untrue. Like it just doesn't hold water because women buy lipstick when the economy is up too. So it's just not, I just wouldn't put Oh, my money. you don't know how many people have come on this podcast and pointed out the lipstick index, which is that when the economy is down, people, lipstick sales rise, but you just found it's, they're always and rising. No, and I also, it's also because <laughs> I worked in, uh, on Wall Street for a couple of years. Uh, so I learned how to read financial analysis, not that I care for it much. Where did that get its start? Oh, that's Ron Lauder. It's, that's, that's all. It sounds, it's another one of those things. It sounds right. It's one of those very modern things that just... It had, there's an earlier version of it. Because women did buy a lot of makeup all through the Depression, but it's not exactly... It's kind of correlation and causation. It doesn't exactly hold up. It's credited to Ronald Lauder. And it was when the first dot-com bubble burst, like post 9-11. The formalized version of it is very modern. And I noticed at the beginning of the pandemic, people are like, well, now it's the now it's the eyeshadow index or it's the nail index or it's the skincare index. And I'm like, stop trying to make it happen. It's not happening. <laughs> just because it just doesn't work out mathematically. The economy does say something about beauty and it will push trends and it will push the way we view it and what we're buying. The social aspects are attached to it, but also very complicated. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, like the baby boom is a huge factor in the way 60s, the way that generation just consumed makeup. They were the first generation that was raised with television, with so much that was aimed at them. Like, There's always been youth culture, you know, certainly the flappers are an example of that. But like that post-war generation, like advertising are like, these kids have pocket change and we are going to get every last nickel. So, you know, whether it was Elvis or Coke or, you know, lipstick, they were used to being 
sold to. They were very comfortable with the idea. I think that was part of the whole hippie ethos was just rejecting like, Madison Avenue can't sell me stuff, man. I'm too smart for that. And I think Madison Avenue really desperately tried. Well, I feel that's the reason I asked is I feel like now there's a bit of that again with Gen with Gen Z. Like Madison Avenue can't sell me stuff because, you know, you ruined the environment, you screwed it all up. So why am I going to listen to you? Yeah, <laughs> they're not wrong. I'm very solidly Gen X. And so I have my own, I grew up punk rock or I thought I was punk rock. We laugh about this all the time. We're like, we don't want your labels. You know, we're just, yeah, now The Clash is selling me. You know, like the Pixies are advertising a a noom, I think, a diet. And The Clash are selling me cloud-based solutions. So it's very weird. But yeah, and it's it's funny because I often come in as a copywriter, as a consulting copywriter, and they're like this generation likes stuff that's authentic. And I'm like, you realize this whole meeting is like, none of this is authentic. Like, so like, how do we fake authentic? How do we fake that for them? But how does this play out in beauty? Like when, when these shifts happen with like cultural thinking or a different generation coming into power, do, do have you found like watching what happened with makeup sales and the trends in beauty, does it really affect the industry or is it, is it like a train that's not going to stop at this point? It's a train that's not going to stop because people, it's become an expression, a self-expression, a form of self-expression. It is, you know, we have been threatening people since the 50s with communism. And they're like, one of the fears of communism, I look right now, people are like, empty shelves, Biden. You know, I don't have 50 types of toilet paper and I blame Joe Biden. And so mm-hmm. Americans are very attached to prosperity and to, you know, seeing themselves as seeing a form of self-expression, whatever form that takes. So I think you're seeing more indie brands these days because people take that to be, authentic or really speaking to them. And you get to pick things based on like everything is vegan and stuff is allegedly sustainable and this is genderqueer or or whatever it is. And all of those things allow people to see themselves and their values represented in the brand. And I think what happens and what has happened, you know, in the 60s, in the 70s and the 80s and 90s, kind of skip this, to an extent, the 90s had a little bit, is that people want to see themselves in makeup. It's really now not just, you can't sell makeup to women anymore. Like, this is how you catch a husband, or even this is the fashion. It it goes beyond that. And it is such a tight, it's so tied into your sense of self. And so the market segments. And so we started to see in the 60s, the first black prestige brands like Fashion Fair and Flory Roberts. And that was one thing that blew my mind was like my whole life. I grew up not too far from Bloomingdale's and I used to walk there and I I remember it being on the floor. And so I always assumed Flory Roberts was black and she's not. She was a, a Jewish lady from New Jersey. But you start to see like, oh, okay, women of color start to see themselves on the cover of Vogue. And in brands that realize like there is more than one skin tone and the skin tone goes up several shades. It's darker, it's lighter, it's mixed. And so you start to see that more and more and people really demand to see it. And I I also talk a lot about like, because I'm worth it, which I think is just a brilliant piece of advertising because it, I describe it as makeup learning to talk feminism. 
and to suddenly see mm-hmm. makeup as at peace with feminism rather than at war against it and the male gaze. And, you know, so a whole generation of women accepts makeup, like you don't have to choose between being a feminist and having a lipstick. And these days I see it, you know, how micro-segmented the market is and people, yeah, I mean, obviously there will always be people and I think Alicia Keys is doing some interesting stuff where she's opting out of makeup, but there's a lot of stuff where it's people really wanting to see themselves in brands and not every model is white and female or assigned female at birth and seeing, you know, just more women of color included, more people on the gender spectrum or it's recyclable. It's not tested on animals. Like people really want to see their values in it now rather than just, it is about conformity, but it's much less than it's ever been. I just want to ask you before, before we, uh, before we wrap up, we have to talk about the pandemic real quick do, because your whole book's about lipstick. It's about makeup, but like you use lipstick as the iconic item of American beauty. Do you think it's going to stay the iconic item? Because like, why didn't you write about mascara or eyeliner or eyeshadow, you know? Like, yeah. Why was it lipstick? And do you think it still will be now that we're wearing masks? Those are all fair questions. And I, yeah, I, I was dug into lipstick. Um, and maybe if I was smarter, I would have been, you know, it would have been eyebrows or something. I, I will go back to um, my theory that Americans love abundance and they love prosperity. And if you look, you know, I'm wagering a guess here, you know, an educated guess here, which is if you look at World War II, this, you see a pencil skirt because fabric was rationed maybe with a drape if you had enough left over. But it's a very slim silhouette by necessity. And then you look at the 50s and you think of the 50s as the poodle skirt and the Dior new look, very Victorian full silhouette. And that, I think, can trace its roots to the fabric rationing. We didn't have fabric and now we do and we're going nuts. I, I might feeling is if the, god willing if there is an ever a period when we can ditch the masks it will come back in an insane way and it, like the neutral lip will be deadsville it will be purple it will be pink it will be shocking mm. cuz i think americans tend to swing if there's ever a depression or a war or some kind of downturn you know, we tend to swing wildly in the other direction when that's taken away. In the 80s, everybody had compact cars because we had the gas crunch of the 70s. In the 90s, we started to get the SUV. So my feeling is like, God willing, there will be a day where we can ditch the masks and go out in public and see humans again. And when that day comes, lipstick is going to come roaring back. I like this theory. Yeah. Before I have you go, though, I have to do what we do at the end of every Fat Mascara interview, a little speed round with you. So I have a couple questions specific to you in your book. I change these up from time to time. What was the weirdest thing you learned while writing this book? Literally the first night I sat down to research. I always refer to American history as a gumball machine of racism and weirdness. And something always falls out. And the first night it was, um, I was reading, a. I found in the Library of Congress an ad in the newspaper in Manzanar. We were advertising lipstick to 
Japanese internees that that would like cheer women up. Like, we know we took away your land and your house and your citizenship and your rights and everything, but get a spanking new lipstick. And I was like, wow, if that is not America and the women's experience. That's the most American thing I've ever heard. That is bananas. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, it was something else. Yes, that counts as Weird. That counts as weird in my book in not a good way. First night. Okay, what's the best book you've read in the last year? Other than, right, you know, everybody should go get Red Menace, which came out in the fall. But what about you? What was your favorite book of the last year? I started it over Christmas. So I'm reading Mary Roach's Fuzz, which is, I love her work. And she's writing about mm-hmm. animals doing illegal things. Like how do you survive a bear attack and stuff like that. So she, her writing is great. I love her. Okay, what's the most iconic movie for beauty or a beauty look? Oh, God, so many of them. I'm going to go back to the women because it centers on a nail polish, not a lipstick, but uh, the women with Joan Crawford and Rosalind Russell. That movie is just, ugh, it's just such a piece of work. And it's about a nail polish in some ways. So I, I think that's worth checking out. That'll do it. What's the beauty product tool or service or whatever that you cannot imagine living without? A liquid eyeliner. I, I just aging punk rock goth kid can't live without my black liquid eyeliner and I'm getting wrinkly. It's not good. Which which is your uh, eyeliner of choice? Uh, Sephora made one and I loved it. And then they changed the brush and I, I'm having an ex- existential crisis about it. So go back to the felt tip brush. <laughs> Sephora. So you're back in the market. Yeah. So I'm back in the market. I'm using, I think, Maybelline now. I'm actually a big Maybelline fan for someone with like as many fancy contacts and stuff as I have. I'm, I'm not mad at Maybelline. And your favorite lipstick of all time, be specific, please. God, people always ask me this and I'm like, just memorize what the lipstick is, dummy. And I never do. <laughs> I'll tell you what my first lipstick was because I guess that sort of started me. It was... A, a L'Oreal drumbeat red. And what kind of red is drumbeat red? It was just a bright blue red. Um, my mother hated it. And that is one of my favorite, and I talk about it all the time. My favorite theory about lipstick comes from, uh, I studied with a film scholar named Molly Haskell, and who's someone everyone should read. And she has a great essay and she posits that you love whatever lipstick your mother hated. So if your mother wore pink, you wear red and vice versa. And so my mother was liked pink tones, natural colors, and I always liked red and black and what purple, whatever was wrong. And she hated it. And so I, I and I have said that to rooms full of women who are like, oh my God, that is true. It's actually, t- I'm thinking about my mom who was more of like a mauve raspberry lady. And I went, I went bold fire engine red always to be opposite of her. Interesting. Yeah, her, her theories. Molly Haskell's theories hold up better than mine in a lot of ways also. No, I think your theories will hold up too. I hope so. And I'm glad you enjoyed them. And I I really have been getting a, a, a great response. The book's fascinating. We loved having you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed the show. It's your reviews and feedback that help us make the podcast even better. Head over to iTunes to rate and review us or email your thoughts to info at fatmascara.com. We also want to answer your beauty questions and hear what products you love. To share a Razor One product review or to ask a beauty question, email us at info at fatmascara. 
If you send it as a voice memo file, we can even share your voice on the podcast. You can also do that by leaving us a voice message. Our phone number in the United States is 646-481-8182. Thanks so much for listening. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Listen, there are so many skincare products on the market claiming to help reduce fine lines and wrinkles, and you know I will try most of them. But how do you know your products are actually working? Some research to back up the claims. That's why Jess and I are all about Ritual. They created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted a clinical study to take the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual's Highest Air is now a part of my skincare routine, and I got in the habit of taking it every day by putting the cute little purple jar right next to my sunscreen. It looks nice on my vanity, and let's be honest, I love that. But once I stuck with the habit, I really noticed a difference in my skin. I am not the only one. In a clinical study, taking Hyacera for 90 days led to a 3.6 time reduction in crow's feet wrinkles as compared to placebo. And it led to a 2.9 increase in skin smoothness. I also like that they're easy to swallow. The capsules sort of taste like vanilla. They're not all weird and fishy like some other supplements. Plus, Ritual is a certified B Corp, something we learned about on a recent episode. And all their supplements, including the Daily Protein and their Sleep Bio Series Melatonin Supplement, are vegan, gluten-free, and made traceable. Do what Jess and I did. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mascara. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mascara for 25% off. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.